0: Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, it's going to give them another chance. If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, dragon tracking, harp, back, pop, every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. I mean, people mess up, but I'm going to give you another chance. But if you don't worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. "'And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?' "'Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, "'O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. "'If this be so, our God, whom we serve, "'is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, "'and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king.' But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This didn't go over well. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face, or even the image of his face, was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace so overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The story's not over. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. There wasn't even a smell of fire upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command." and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, classic Nebuchadnezzar here, shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Father, we thank you as we come to your word uh, that you are not an arbitrary uh, fly-off-the-handle God, but you are just, good, true, and beautiful in every way. And yet we thank you, God, now that you, in that, do not promise us an easy life in this world as your followers. But you do promise you'll be with us. And we pray that we would see that today and learn a little more what it means to be faithful as your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last night, we were at a restaurant, uh, and the football game was on, Georgia versus Tennessee. And you guys know I'm not the pastor who uses a lot of football illustrations, because I'm just not a super fan or whatever. But this kind of fits. So Georgia's playing Tennessee. For anybody in here who doesn't know it, my wife went to the University of Georgia for college. and She also isn't a big fan. So, And if you're a Tennessee fan, don't think I'm about to bash Tennessee or talk about the score, because that's not my point. My point was, it was quite awkward especially my son here who was cheering for Georgia while Tennessee was winning the game out loud. But to be in a situation like that when you are like the lone person, so you're sitting in a restaurant in Tennessee surrounded by a sea of orange, a giant screen about the size of this wall full of everybody shaking their orange and white pom-poms, and, and you really just aren't a diehard fan My temptation in those situations, and not just temptation, but the way I act always, is just to secretly inside kind of cheer on my own team, but on the outside act like I don't really care. My goal is I just want to stay hidden. I don't want to be brought into the situation. I don't want to have to experience any type of conflict. I don't really even care to be revealed but I just kind of lean in to whatever's going to keep things nice and cool with everybody. And as I thought about that and thought about this text, is this is often how it can feel for us to be followers of what God tells us that is true about who He is in a world that doesn't accept that. What I'm saying is sometimes you find yourself in the world as God's people where everybody around you, Is cheering against a reality that says there is no one true God. There is no truth. There is no God. And the temptation is just to kind of put your head down and hope nobody calls me out. To hope I don't have to be exposed. Hope that I don't have to be revealed. We live in a world, and not to use a fancy word, I've got a friend here this day who helps me learn big words, and we have words of the day. So today's word of the day could be pluralism. And what I mean by this word pluralism is just a belief that, that there are, are many gods. And that's, and that's just how it is. We live in a, in a world where there are many people who worship their own god in their own way, and for you to be a good person, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of moral authority that comes along with this. For you to be a good person means you just need to go along with that. And the longer time goes on in our culture and in our, in our world, I believe, and I may not be wrong, I'm, I may be wrong, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, is that that pressure is only going to increase. And it's going to increase at a rate to where it doesn't only mean that you feel uncomfortable like you would in a sea of other fans of another team, but it could increase at a rate to where people feel like you are a danger to society. Like you are in a very similar situation like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If we remember these three and Daniel and all of these other young people from Israel, the reason they've been brought to Babylon first in these series of deportations is so that they as the sort of influencers of culture could be assimilated into the Babylonian way. So therefore later when the rest of the Israelites come, they'll look and say, hey, if our smartest people, that and remember they were handsome, if the people that look the good best and know the best, if they've said it's okay that we keep worshiping our God, but we also you know go along with all these other gods, if they say that's okay, then it must be okay. We can have... Our God and our history and our faith and they can have theirs and we can all just kind of unite together around the kingdom of Babylon. The pressure comes upon us in ways that we don't realize, but it's also not coming at us from the outside. It comes from the inside. We want to look at these two angles this morning, that it's not just a world that's calling us to accept other gods, but our own hearts are calling us to love and worship other gods not gods that are made out of metal, but gods that in our hearts we say they can give us what we want. They can give us peace. As exiles, we must have a persevering faith in the face of the fires of idolatry. And how do we have a persevering faith in the face of the fires of idolatry? The first thing is we must expect it. We've got to expect it. Well, it's, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in 1950s. Everybody knows the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, America anymore. Now, in Cleveland, Tennessee, maybe Lee University world, we can kind of still feel like that sometimes. But if we, if we get out a little bit and all we got to do is turn on our TV, get on our computer, we realize that we do not live in a world that just assumes that there is a God, the God of Israel, the God who's revealed himself in Jesus, the God who's given us his word that we might know him. These things just aren't assumed anymore. And in the vacuum of that isn't just sort of this emptiness, but there are, are people, places, things that want to step into that role and offer us a new sort of unity, a new sort of center, a new sort of peace. And for Nebuchadnezzar here, we notice in verse 1, it's what we might call a self-referential nationalism. So if you remember from last time, uh, Daniel's received this vision of this image, and at the top of the image was a head of gold, and then it works its way down, and the head of gold represented Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and how great it was. But the image told the story of, but even no matter how great you are, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die, Babylon's going to end, and another nation will rise up. And ultimately, at the end of all those kingdoms, the kingdom of God will come through the reign of his son who will be king. And, and I feel like Nebuchadnezzar building this statue, notice it's all gold. This is not an accident. Nebuchadnezzar's saying, Not so fast, Daniel. Remember, he, this guy is a, a wild guy. So in one minute, he's saying, there's only one God, and if you don't believe it, I'm going to rip your arms off, literally. And then in the next second, he's saying, well, I don't believe that anymore. Now if you worship that God, I'm going to kill you. He's going to do it to Daniel again. We know what's going to happen. Back and forth. So I think he's saying, not so fast. You had a vision of only me being the head in my kingdom. I'm going to show you an image of where I go from Tip to toe, head to feet. God, I'll set the course of history, thank you very much. And it's my kingdom and my country that will bring unity. Notice in in these first seven verses, everyone is called to unite in a common worship of what might be called a public pluralism. Notice it's the peoples, the languages, the nations. What Nebuchadnezzar here is trying to do is bring unity by melding together this image that that really in the end, and most people would say, doesn't represent him so much, but it represents the gods of Babylon, the gods of his empire. It's a it's an anti-Lord's prayer. If the Lord's prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we look into heaven and, and we get glimpses in God's word, and it's 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 all peoples, languages, and nations worshiping the one true God. When well, Nebuchadnezzar said, my kingdom come, or on earth as I say it is, everyone bow to all these gods, and now we will have unity. And if you don't fall in line, then you'll burn. Bow or burn. Conform or be canceled. Maybe another way in our world. The pressures of idolatry are strong, whether they're coming from the outside or the inside. I remember my first experience as a, as a young boy in middle school with pornography. I remember me and some of my friends, we would ride our bicycles all over town. Again, that feels like a different age, right? Yeah, riding our bikes. And uh, we would ride from out kind of in the country where I lived into into town where we had about two options to eat, McDonald's or Hardee's. And one of my friends lived near McDonald's. And I remember going into his house with my buddies. And they went back into his bedroom. And I mean, it was just classic stereotype. And they looked, got under his mattress and got out the VHS tape. And it was, it was bad. I'd never uh, witnessed anything like that before, but as I thought about this text, it was—it was—I I felt even at that age, not because I was better than anybody, like this isn't right, this is not good. And but but there they all were in front of the TV, and really in my mind, it, it looks like worship because here's the TV, and there they are. Literally on their knees, like, in a circle. And and I'm out here, like, what do I do? Bow or be excluded. Bow or be the goody two-shoes. We grow up and we find ourselves in all these different types of situations, not only as kids, but adults. We find ourselves in groups of people where they're idolizing money or success. And we feel like, man, if I don't, if I don't center my life around that, then I, I'm just excluded from certain conversations. We find ourselves in circles, maybe even very very similar to our text, to where people are mocking the fact that there would be a one true God who could be known and expects us to know Him and to follow Him in a world of, of such diversity and pluralism but one way we will never be able to face these fires is by just putting our heads in the sand. By just saying, I don't want to deal with it. We've got to learn to discern this message in our culture. This is a message that's coming loud and clear, is everyone bow because this will give us unity. Everyone, if we could just get everybody to to conform, then we could have unity. We've got to be able to discern where that message is coming through and then we cannot buy the lie that wants to to tell us there's no king or power behind that call for unity because there's always a Nebuchadnezzar where there's a call to false worship. We must be prepared for the pull of powers to something other than the kingdom of God, whether that be a nationalism that says we bow to an identity in an earthly nation and that will give us unity and stability. Or a universalism that says we must bow to the belief that all religions are just one and the same. You know, we may call them by different names, but they're all really the same. And we're, you know, this, this sort of very uh, very simplistic and, and shallow argument that like the God is this elephant and we're all blind men touching one part of the elephant. And you know, at the end of our lives, we'll see that we were all really talking about the same thing just from different perspectives. That is exactly what this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up is saying. But we also must be aware that idolatry begins in our hearts. And in this story, we are not, first of all, most like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we're Nebuchadnezzar. How many of us have some side of... And not how many of us, all of us in here have some kind of idol in our heart that we think, if everyone would just worship my idol then I could have a lot more unity and progress in my life if I could just get this person or this group to see the world revolves around this image that I've set up, man wouldn't life just be a better place just accept my demands of how I want to be loved And everything will be great. Just give me the control that I want. And we can have a a wonderful society. Just give me the approval I want and how I want it. Just give me the comfort I want. Just give me the success I want. And the world will be a better place. I mean, we're Nebuchadnezzars. And the wounds that we've suffered in our life make us vulnerable to believing that the only way that we can survive in this world and the only way that we can have peace in our hearts is if we can just get everyone to conform their stories to our story, to, 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 to make their lives serve our lives. And we hear that lie in our ear that if we don't do that, we won't survive. It's a a different form of bow or burn. It's the lie of the enemy saying, you will not be able to live without that idol. You can't survive without it. Look, it got you this far. So we need a vision of what faithfulness looks like. In verses 8 through 18, we see this. What happens in verses 8 through 12 is that they're forced out. That sometimes... You ever how quiet you may want to be and play in the background is that sooner or later you're going to be revealed, you're going to be put in a situation, whether that's coming from the outside against you or coming from the inside within you. The Israel three here are singled out and accused of not complying. It doesn't seem like they were making a public fuss, like they had made got cardboard signs and were marching in the middle of Babylon. We will not bow, we will not bow. No, they're they're. Like we've said, a part of what it means to be wisdom as exiles is not that we're just anti-culture. No, they're, they're living in it. They, they've really adapted in a lot of ways. They've learned the literature. They've learned the music. They've learned the history. They're serving within the government. They didn't say it's wrong for us to even participate in this Babylonian government and world. No, they're in the world, but notice what does it mean for them to not be of the world is they've just been asked to cross a line they can't cross. An explicit denial of the heart and essential essential center of their faith and that there is only one true God. And the way that they respond is amazing. Notice verse 16. We have no need to answer you in this matter. I mean, this is crazy. So oftentimes as Christians, we are so defensive. I mean, we're just walking around thinking, the world's against us, you know, Christian martyr complex, everybody's trying to take us down, and we're like, on the attack. These, these guys give us a picture of what it looks like to be confident in God. They're like, yeah, we don't really have to debate this. And this is what we believe. But also, they don't believe that God has to defend himself on their terms. And this is what's amazing. And this is what challenges us. Notice what they say. God can deliver us, but you know what? Maybe he won't. How does that fly in the face of all of, the, of this word of faith and silly prosperity theology that tells you that if you just believe in God, he's going to always deliver you from your pain and problems? No, these guys say, hey, he can, but guess what? Maybe he won't. That's not a lack of faith. That is showing a powerful faith. Their faith is not dependent upon God's present performance, but upon God's eternal character. This is not a faith that has strings attached. Many people know Jim Elliott as one of the uh, sort of most famous missionaries, if missionaries are famous. Anybody in here heard heard of Jim Elliott? All right, uh, I see that hand. Uh, If you don't know about Jim Elliott, in 1953, working in Quito, Ecuador, gets married, keeps working there, but he wants to go reach this unreached tribe of the Akas, or... I may not be pronouncing that right. This was a group no one had ever met. They were a fierce group. It was very dangerous. So here he goes, flies in with his buddies, and guess what happens on day one? Not like, hey, look at what God did, and then I got killed. No, on day one, he just walks on the beach, dead. 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 That's a fire. There's another hero in this story, and that's Jim's wife, Elizabeth. What's she got to be thinking right now? I mean, give me a break, God. We just reoriented all of our life to serve you. I mean, we're, we're believing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're walking into this, this these tribes with these gods who don't know who the one true God is, and we're going to risk everything, all the comforts of America to go here. And what do you do? You just kill my husband on day one. He hits the beach dead. And guess what, God, if you don't remember, I've got a 10-month-old little girl now I've got to raise by myself. And I guess we'd assume she'd just go back home and maybe give up on God. But what's so amazing is with that 10-month-old daughter, she just stays. She stays. And then she learns the language through some natives, and then she actually goes to that very tribe of people who killed her husband herself. And she just doesn't go there to forgive them. She goes there to live with them and to love them. And they nicknamed her Woodpecker. I may stretch this a little bit, but that's what preachers are supposed to do. Part of what I read said she was nicknamed Woodpecker just because she was so small. But I like to think there's a lot of small things. She could have been named Little Pebble or Blade of Grass or Snail. So I was thinking why, and 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 such groups like that are very good at these nicknames. I was thinking, well, if I don't know for sure that's what they meant, this is what I'm thinking it means. So we're into that realm of just what I think, dangerous realm, is that woodpecker just keeps sitting there. If you've ever been around a woodpecker, it's like nice at first and then it gets annoying. give up that little beat beating against that big old hard tree just keeps going it's little but it's a persistent faith it's a faith we see in her life a faith we see in Shadrach Meshach and Abednego's life and it's the faith that we're called to engage a faith that's ready to be revealed Get ready, at some point it's going to be revealed and you're going to have to say in some circle where it's not maybe accepted I believe in the one true God the God of Israel, the God of Jesus the God of the great tradition we find ourselves in as the church but it's also going to be revealed internally. You're going to face some very big temptations some very big trials that don't come from anybody outside but just come from in your own life in your own story. And you're going to have to remember that not only is your private faith meant to be your public faith, that there's to be no division, but that your public faith is also to be your private faith. And some of us are falling into one ditch or the other. Some of us there are like, well, I have my private faith, but not in public. And then there's others of us who are like, I'm good with having a public faith, but not private. But the way of God's people is that those unite a faith ready to be revealed, a faith that embraces closed-handed convictions in a pluralistic world that says the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Whom we read of in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven amongst which men may be saved but Jesus. And a vision we see in Revelation 5, 10 is not of people at the end of time saying, oh wow, all of our beliefs were actually this and it's okay, but of a faith that says Jesus alone is Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords and every tribe, tongue, nation and people bow before him but we also must have an open handed faith and this is what I think the main point right here is, do you have a faith that says, God, I don't care what you do but I trust you. I trust you with no strings attached. I know you could bring me out of the fire, but you might throw me in it. Because to say to God that I'll only serve you if you give me this, whatever your this is, that is your God. That's your idol. That's your image of gold. And if you don't know it, if you've never been told it, and I hate to hear it myself, is God may not give you what you want. A public faith may cause you to lose your friends, lose your job, and maybe even one day lose your life. A private faith will say to you, my kids may grow up, and hate me I surely hope not this church may not exist next year my marriage may go through unimaginable hardships but no matter what the enemy can do We'll trust in God. That is a hard prayer to pray. And we find it in the middle of this story that many of us have relegated to a children's story, but it's a powerful picture of faith. Deliver me or not, doesn't matter. We will not bow to these other gods who offer us a different or better life. So, as always, rush at the end because I go doubly long on what I mean to earlier but the end is important how in the world do we do that how in the world do we even how in the world do I even have the audacity to stand up here and say that in good conscience and then go back home because that's what I wrestle with <laughs> as I prepare this I mean I don't want to believe that I don't want to say that in my flesh so how do we go through this well this 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 good Good, true story of God helps us that we experience God's deliverance not only from the fire, but in the fire. We see here before the fire, these these three Hebrew children are calm, but Nebuchadnezzar's going wild, right? He's raging as usual. He it seven times higher. Tie them up. Like, why does it matter if they're tie, tied up when they're thrown into a fire? He's just going wild. And then now he, he's like, doesn't care if his, probably some of his best soldiers get killed. He's like, y'all just run in there and throw them in. You know, everybody's dying. But then in the fire, he can't believe his eyes because there's not just three, but it's the song I sang growing up. If you want to look it up, you probably wouldn't like it. But anyway, there's a fourth man walking in the midst of the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really know what he's talking about here, but he's like, it's like a son of the gods. And some Hebrew people want to say, it actually is in the singular, son of God. They survived. Not a hair on their head was singed. The same list of people that cowardly just gave in to Nebuchadnezzar's desires so that there could be this fake unity that helped people just coexist together are the ones now who look upon these faithful, brave children of God who have been delivered. And although, and this is important, as we get to the end, they've been delivered from the fire, we we see they're still called to live under the arbitrary rule of Nebuchadnezzar who for the moment is on their side, but he's still you know, tearing people's limbs off and laying people's houses in ruin. Who doesn't agree with him? That even their delivery, temporary deliverance from the fire didn't take them out of the pressures of the world? And how did they do it? It wasn't that God delivered them from the fire, it was that God was with them in the fire, through the fire. Before the fire, after the fire. How can we face the fire and make it through? The only way we can face the fire and make it through is we have got to cultivate a deep, experiential, sometimes even without even any feelings, but a deep and real conviction that God is with us in our pain. He's with us in the persecution. He's not some, this cruel deity off in the sky saying, hey, what lesson can I teach them today? You know, like he's got a voodoo doll of you. Some people think of God and his control over things as if he like has a voodoo doll of you up in heaven. And he's like saying, hey, I want to make, I want to make a, I'm looking at Graham, Graham grow right now. (laughs) Ha, 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 you know? That is not who God is. God loves you. We live in a broken and fallen world where things are not how they're supposed to be. And he rules and reigns over all that down to the roll of a dice. But mysteriously, and we have to embrace this mystery, is that his rule and control over all things does not in one way diminish his being with us in the middle of our pain and our brokenness. And if you doubt that, where's Daniel at? This is what Daniel does. He's on his phone. If you doubt that, Daniel, it's the good part. You just got to look to Jesus. I and mean, there's, there's really a fire, a judgment that we all deserve. Because again, we're Nebuchadnezzars. And God could have just said, hey, just let them, let them be alone in a broken world. It's their sin, it's their rebellion. It started this thing as humans from the beginning. Just let that thing play out and burn itself out down there on Earth. I'm washing my hands of it. I'm done. And some of us believe that's what God's done some days. It's what it feels like. But the gospel tells us another story, a better story, the true story of a God who, who sees us and who cares. And this is how much he cares. That he, in the person of his son, steps into this world of fire. And walks in all of our shoes. To be tempted, not simply through the whispers in the ears of Satan, but with Satan himself. To be spat upon, to be mocked, to be wounded by people he loves. The people he thought he could trust the most were the people who betrayed him the deepest. To be beset with human weakness. And then as we see him praying in the garden, do we remember what he's doing? He's not just crying, but he's sweating. He's sweating. What causes sweat, heat, pressure? Have you ever got so anxious or angry that you start to sweat? I have. Jesus stepped into that. The sweat of the pressure, not only of human pain, but of human Judgment. And he went to the cross and he bore the heat that we all deserve. He went into the furnace of the just judgment of God. And there wasn't nobody else there with him. He did what only he could do by himself. The father wasn't some angry, reckless Nebuchadnezzar in that moment. That he was, in his ways only God could do it, was loving us and preparing us to see the glory of His Son and the victory of His kingdom in a way we never could have. And what's amazing is that the gospel doesn't stop with the cross, and the gospel doesn't even stop with the resurrection. But the good news of the gospel tells us that then He gives us His Holy Spirit so that every day, every every stinking day of your life, that you're in that fire, and nobody else understands, and nobody else cares, and you didn't get what you want, and your dreams feel like they're dying all around you, that He is in you, He is with you, and He has promised He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that one day, when He returns and wraps this thing up, and His kingdom fills this earth as the waters fill the sea, that you are going to experience a joy that is nothing compared to, to the pain that you have experienced now. And I don't know that I could get up in the morning if those words weren't spoken over my life in Christ some days. And those idols that we look to to survive, they're not going to be with us in those hard times. But God will. And through the blessing of God, I think He wants to give us friends. Pretty neat, they didn't have to go in the fire by themselves. Now Daniel, he's going to go in the den by himself. Yeah. Jesus went by himself. But he gives us what the Bible calls a church, and a church that's not supposed to be just a pretty building that you go to and get married and buried in, right? But a people who you can go in that fire with, and you can say, I'm tied up, but at least I'm not tied up by myself. Is what, this is what our vision is for our missional communities, for our fight clubs, for our lives together, not to give a, other, some people some structures or boxes they have to check off but so that we can follow Jesus together and we can go into a world full of brokenness and pain and sin and suffering and we can say, hey we're with you but we've we found one who is with us and that's the only way I know that we can stand in the fire's That we face, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, God, on the days when there's no, there's no hope in ourself. There's no feelings of faith. That Your presence is not dependent on that. Thank you, God, that Your presence is dependent upon Jesus and our union with Him thank you for that in his name. Amen.